So we're continuing in our series, Christmas Unwrapped, thinking about the names of Jesus. Today's Bible reading comes from the final book of the Bible in Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. As I read, listen to how Jesus is described. So Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, "'Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last.' I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thank you, Jane. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all. Um, Now, have you ever um, looked up your own name on Google? 
Uh, I tried it this week, so let me show you. Uh, this is Google Images, um, and I did pretty well, didn't I? Like, there's not many David Sheets around, but um, there's a few of me there. Um, but notice there keeps on being a guy standing next to a pink Fiat. Um, so let me focus on this guy, because his name is also David Sheath. Um, over four days, he, uh, he um, won uh, one of those world records. What do you call it? Guinness Book of World Records. He's in there. Uh, because over four days, he used 131 bottles of nail polish to paint his car. Uh, and uh, he kind of, it was the, the world's longest running advertisement uh, over four days live stream. And he said this, I broke up with my girlfriend and thought this would be a great way to get through it. Uh, so there you go. And here is the finished car. Uh, there it is. How good is that? How, how proud to have you know, a, a fellow David Sheath doing great things out there in the world. Um, now, does anyone recognise this guy on the screen? This guy that's about to appear? Let's have, anyone recognise this guy? No, no, it's not a good guess. Um, this guy's name is Taylor Swift. Um, poor guy, but that is, that is really his name. Uh, and he used to have the Gmail, taylorswift at gmail.com, but he just couldn't handle it any longer. He kept on getting messages like, OMG, you're so pretty and I love you. Uh, he'd get emails requesting certain songs and, and suggestions for song lyrics. But he, will, he would also cop abuse, like on Facebook, for pretending to be the real Taylor Swift, when that's just, that's just the name he was given at birth. Um, now, this is kind of what happens with Jesus when Jesus comes into our world. Some of the names that are given to Jesus belong to God alone. And we're left with the conclusion either Jesus is an imposter or he really is God who has come amongst us. Uh, so we saw that last week. So um, Darren, really helpfully, so we're unpacking the names of Jesus. Darren took us to Isaiah chapter 9 and that incredible prophecy 700 years before Jesus of a child who would be born, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, and those are the names that Jesus takes on board. Next week on Christmas Eve, uh, and then again on Christmas Day, uh, and Joel unpacked that, we're going to look at Jesus, the King and Saviour. So his name, Jesus Christ, we're going to unpack what that means uh, and the implications for us. And then at 7pm, the Christmas Eve will be a different talk, Emmanuel, God with us. But today we come to this last book of the Bible and Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And I just want to do two things simply today. One is I want to unpack the name Alpha and the Omega. And secondly, I just want to think about the implications. Uh, and they are massive implications for us who follow the Lord Jesus. So, uh, yeah, if you've got a Bible there, it'd be great if you could open up. I'm going to put a lot of verses on the screen, but it's actually it's much better if you're looking at your own Bible and kind of getting a feel for it as, as we go. The book of Revelation begins with some words from Jesus. 
Jesus says, uh, so the Apostle John sees Jesus and falls down at his feet as though dead. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And Jesus will say something very similar at the end of the book of Revelation. He will say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, if you know your Bible, you'll know that those names or descriptions belong to God alone. Does anyone know where those names, well, not the Alpha and the Omega, but the first and the last. Does anyone know where God calls himself the first and the last? Anyone want to have a guess? Written 700 years before Jesus. What's that, what's that Darren? The book of Isaiah. So we're going back to Isaiah just, uh, just for a little while. Um, so look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, where God says, I am the first and the last. Apart from me, there is no God. And again, a few chapters later, God says, listen to me, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. And the idea behind these chapters, uh, these are some of the most breathtaking chapters in the Bible about just how unique the one true God is. So unique, so unlike any of the other gods throughout the world. Uh, And so in, in Isaiah chapter 44, God describes how idols are made. And he talks about a guy who, you know, goes out into the forest, chops down a tree, cuts it up into logs, and he takes one of the logs and he builds a fire and he warms himself by the fire. Ah, now I feel warm by this fire. And then he takes another one of the logs from the same tree and carves an idol out of it, puts it in the corner of his room and bows down and worships it. And God's, God's basically saying, how stupid is that? Have a look at Isaiah 44 verse 19. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Uh, A block of wood that cannot move, cannot see, cannot speak. And God wants to say, God says very clearly, no, there is only one true God, eternal. Uh, The first and the last. He is the first because he was before all things. And he was the one who spoke and all things came to being. And he is the last. He will be the last one standing. And it's not just the first and the last. Every moment in between, God rules this world that he made. That's why he's being captured by the sense that God is the first and the last. Ruling this world from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity in the future. Uh, And the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation is written in full awareness of Isaiah chapter 44. So Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus comes. And we open up the book of Revelation 
And we see God sitting on a throne in the first chapter. And God himself says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was, uh, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, Alpha and Omega uh, comes from the Greek alphabet. Did you know the word alphabet comes from the Greek alphabet? Because right? Alpha is the first letter, Beta is the second letter. Put them together, what do you get? Alphabet, okay. Uh, so, alphabet, uh, in the Greek alphabet, Alpha is the first letter. Any guesses on the last letter? Omega, right? Uh, and so it's the whole idea of the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, and God describes himself in that way in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. Then again in chapter 21, when God makes the new heavens and the new earth, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And yet, when Jesus steps onto the scene in the book of Revelation, and it's kind of like the curtains are drawn back and we see into heaven, Jesus chooses those same descriptions to talk about himself. Let, let me remind you of that again. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And again, at the end of the book, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Can you see that Jesus unambiguously, deliberately is taking the names of the one true God and using them to describe himself? Uh, that is a breathtaking thing for Jesus to do. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard of um, C.S. Lewis, uh, but this guy uh, in the middle of last century was an atheist, uh, but after many years of wrestling with ideas, wrestling with the scriptures, he felt compelled to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and God. And he wrote a great book called Mere Christianity, which still has a real relevance to it, you know, like 50, 60 years later. And let me read some of what he says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And here's the foolish thing. A lot of people say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And C.S. Lewis says, that is one thing we must not say. Say what you like about Jesus, but you can't say he's just a great moral teacher. He's either much more or much less. So he goes on and he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, right? lost touch with reality, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has, left, he has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Right? Jesus compels us to make a choice. 
Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that Jesus was and is God. Right? Beautifully written, isn't it? Uh, and just compelling in the logic. Um, and I just want to say to us, one of the dangers of Christmas is that we don't want to domesticate Jesus. You know, because what we'll see around Christmas time, quite rightly, is a lot of mangers with the baby Jesus in the manger. Um, and that's true. He came and was born 2,000 years ago in the most humble circumstances. But who could possibly take offence at a little baby in a manger? Uh, there's just something cute and adorable uh, about that. And yet, what we see in the book of Revelation is this same Jesus calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the Lord of history. Uh, he, eternal, there making the world in the past, he will rule into eternity in the future. He rules the world even now, though we do not see him. He rules this world. This is why... C.S. Lewis, as he wrote his other books, the Narnia series, he chose to depict Jesus with Aslan the lion. Uh, and very, he very deliberately said, Aslan is not a tame, domesticated cat. He's not the sort of cat you'd have in your home and you'd feed him and pet him and all that sort of stuff. He is a lion, awesome, terrifying, untamable. And so you don't want to get on the wrong... He is good, but you don't want to get on the wrong side of Jesus. And so as we come to worship Jesus this Christmas, let's recognise that this child we will come to worship is the awesome God come amongst us, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who rules history from time eternal in the past he will rule history right into eternity. He rules history even now, even this moment. He alone holds the keys to death and Hades. And so our lives are very much in his hands, his control. So what I want to do is take that idea, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, and I want to just ask the question, what does it mean for us? And I want you to have a look at this with me from Revelation chapter 1. And have a look at verse, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. And my question for you is this. Where is Jesus standing? Where is Jesus? John says, so this is the Apostle John, one of Jesus' followers. Uh, you know, it's decades after the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. But he says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Where is Jesus standing? He's standing amongst Amongst the lampstands, 
right? Amongst the lampstands. Someone said churches, but they were running ahead, right? Because verse 17, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And so what are these lampstands, you might ask? Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what you have here is a picture of Jesus standing amongst his people standing amongst the churches uh, and Jesus is standing here amongst us today as his word is spoken by the power of his spirit the great alpha and the omega is present with us even today the lord of history is with us as we gather uh, that is an amazing thought isn't it that Jesus is amongst his church. He rules this church by his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say this is a great comfort to know that Jesus, the great Lord of history, is amongst us. It's a great comfort. Um, I can remember uh, 15 years ago or so, my daughter came home from school. So she was in, I think, third class. Uh, She looked like this. This is not the, the same day, but this is the same year. Um, so she comes home from school and one of her classmates said this during the class, you're a loser because you're a Christian. Uh, now that, that hasn't scarred her for life. She probably can't even remember that happening, but I just remembered, I noted it down at the time. Uh, and because it was one of those moments where you feel the hard edge of following Jesus. And there, will, there have been many, many moments since. Anyone who follows Jesus will feel that sense of alienation. And if you just watched the news or read the newspapers, you might believe it. Because you don't see a lot of positive press about Jesus or Christianity today, do you? Uh, you know, the papers, the, inter- the, the, the mainstream news services are not really into Jesus. Or they're not courageous enough to be into Jesus in a public way. Uh, a few weeks ago, you might have heard what happened to Andrew Thorburn. Uh, he was appointed the CEO of Essendon Football Club. Uh, and he had a, a, an amazing track record as a, Christian, as a CEO of a number of companies Within hours of being appointed, he was pressured to resign. Even the Premier of Victoria waded in and just said he has no place leading the Essendon Football Club because the values of Christianity, it was decided, are at odds with the values of Essendon Football Club. Uh, And despite Thorburn's exceptional track record as a CEO, his exceptional treatment of all the staff that he'd ever worked for, sorry, worked with, his Christian beliefs were seen to be unacceptable. So this is what Thorburn himself commented. My Christian faith and my association with a church are unacceptable in our culture if you wish to hold a leadership position in our society. 
Now, it hasn't always been like that in Australia, so there's, there's a change in the wind in Australia. And as a Christian, you can feel like a loser. I don't know if, you, if you've ever felt like that. But the pressure is on to feel like you're on the wrong side of history, that you are believing in things that are outdated, antiquated, and don't belong in the modern age. But I just want to say something. I want to point something out. It's been that way from the beginning. Christians have always felt small. Christians have always felt like a small minority against much larger forces. You know, in the, in the first century, it was the Roman Empire. And it was people like Herod and Pontius Pilate and, and, and the rulers of this world who just seemed to have no place for this carpenter from Nazareth. Uh, and so that's why Christians back in the first century needed this vision of Jesus. They needed to see reality as it really is. They needed the curtains to be drawn back so that they could see Jesus on his throne, the Alpha and the Omega, who once was dead, yes, crucified in the most humble circumstances, uh, humiliated, and yet now he's alive forever and ever and ruling. And he holds the keys to death and Hades. The future of every person on the planet is in his hands. And one day every knee will bow before this Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now, this vision of Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, it is given to encourage and strengthen us, to give us courage and confidence in a world that just seems so opposed to Jesus and where we can feel so small. So listen to the words of encouragement that Jesus gives to the churches. I'm just going to kind of pick and choose from what Jesus says in some of the letters to the churches. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work. I know your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for your name, and you have not grown weary. Right? Sometimes we're tempted to grow weary uh, it can be hard to press on, can't it? You know, in your workplace, to actually stand up and be counted as one of Jesus' people, uh, it's tempting to remain anonymous. But Jesus sees when we stand for him. He sees the little things we do that no one else notices. He sees that we are pressing on, faithfully seeking to honour him. What an encouragement that is, that Jesus knows, Jesus sees, and Jesus will reward his children, so his people. Chapter 2, verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. You're right in the midst of it, yet you remain true to my name. Jesus sees that. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. No one else may notice this, 
But I see it, says Jesus. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. And that speaks to many of us, doesn't it? Feel like, man, this, it's, it's, I'm weary. Uh, I don't know how much I can keep pressing on following Jesus. And Jesus says, I see it and, and I honour it. And I will reward your faithful perseverance. Press on. Be full of courage and confidence. You're on the winning side. Just press on. Trust the Lord Jesus. Don't lose heart. So knowing Jesus is amongst us is a real comfort and encouragement. He sees what goes unnoticed. But that brings with it a challenge too, doesn't it? Uh, Because he knows the secret things uh, that are not good as well. So chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You know how when people get married, you know that whole honeymoon, the, the passion, the excitement to be around one another, the joy of the wedding. But then over the years... The love can fade. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, no, no, the love has just got richer and richer every day since. Um, But for some of us, you know, the love can fade, that passion, that enthusiasm. There can be a lovelessness that creeps into marriage if we're not on our guard. And there can be a lovelessness that creeps into our relationship with Jesus as well. And we kind of can be aware that it's happening, but we need to be aware that Jesus is aware it's happening as well. Um, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Uh, Jesus knows when we compromise the truth, when we flirt with other things that take our allegiance away from him. Uh, When we tolerate what is unacceptable to him, he sees that and he wants us to hold on to him and his word without compromise. Um, Even when it's unpopular, give your allegiance to Jesus. Trust him. He is the Lord of history. Chapter 3, verse 1, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. They're hard words, aren't they? Or verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot, you're lukewarm. And it feels to me uh, that one of the dangers of our church, as we've kind of come out of this COVID era, which is a a once-in-a-generation time, like it's been a unique time um, and it's, it's completely understandable that, that we come out a little bit tentatively and life you know, continues on but the danger we need to guard against is that we come out of COVID just a little cooler in our relationship with Jesus just a little bit less enthusiastic just a little bit less committed 
to the gathering of God's people. You know, it, it, it used to be my weekly habit. Now it's my fortnightly habit. Uh, I used to give sacrificially. Now I kind of, well, pulling back. And I just, uh, I just want us to hear the words of Jesus that he, he, he doesn't want us to be lukewarm, apathetic in our following him. He wants to renew our passion, our allegiance to him. Uh, and I think even this morning we ought to ask Jesus to stir us to that love that we had at first. This morning, Jesus is amongst us. The words he uses to challenge are these. Repent, be faithful, repent again, hold on, wake up, remember, hold fast, hold on, be earnest, and repent. Uh, if, you, if you are at a point where you're realizing, yeah, I have drifted, I have gone cool in my relationship with Jesus, in my commitment to his purposes, then today is a day to renew your first love, uh, to renew your undying allegiance to Jesus. And, and at the heart of that renewal is resetting our focus. It's actually going, I'm going to read how I live in the world, not based on what it looks like, but I'm going to, I'm going to take my approach to life, what God has revealed. And especially when he pulls back the curtains and we see Jesus, the Lord of history, the Alpha and the Omega, the, begin, the, 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 the one who was dead and is now alive and rules forever and ever. This is the Jesus that we need to see bigger than anything else in our lives. Uh, and Jesus finishes each of these letters to the churches with a reassurance to the one who is victorious. And I think by victorious, just go to the next slide, to the one who is victorious. And by victorious, I think Jesus means just the one who presses on, for the one who doesn't fail in their courage, for the one who just doesn't turn aside but keeps trusting the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, to the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The one who's victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Yes, they might die physically, but they will be raised eternally. To the one who's victorious, I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give them authority over the nations. I'll never blot out the the name of that person. From the book of life, I'll make them a pillar in the temple of my God, and I'll give them the right to sit on my throne. So just as I rule over all things, so those who follow me will rule with me over all things. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, he is with us today. He has spoken his word. And he's calling on us to live with courage, perseverance, and faith, even in the uncertain, anxious times in which we live. He's calling on us to press on and not give up, 
not lose heart. And so I want to conclude with the words of Jesus at the end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 12, where Jesus says, Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they've done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Why don't you just take a a moment to pause and reflect and to to bring some of your thoughts before uh, God even now. And then I'll lead us in prayer in just a moment. Right at the end of Revelation, there is a kind of response that the church makes when Jesus says, I'm coming again. And they say, Amen, down the bottom of the screen, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And I just want to invite you at the end of my prayer that I'm going to pray, let's say those words together, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let me pray. God our Father, as we come to worship Jesus this Christmas... Please help each one of us recognise that this child who was born in a manger in such humble circumstances, this child is the awesome God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He alone holds the keys to death and Hades. And so, Father, this Christmas and throughout the rest of our lives, fill our eyes with a vision of him. May we behold him, uh, the Alpha and the Omega. We are sorry that we become lukewarm. We're sorry when we lose our passion or our love for Jesus grows cool. Fix our eyes on Jesus afresh, we pray. Forgive us our complacency. We want to listen to Jesus. We want him to be our Lord and Lord of this church. And Father, we pray that we won't listen to the opinions of our world, but that we will live for Jesus' praise and fix our eyes on him. Help us to persevere even when we are weary, to press on. Help us to spur one another on as we follow Jesus. We don't save ourselves. Jesus is our saviour. Help us to keep trusting him and honour him in the way we live our lives until that glorious day when Jesus comes again. And so we say together, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.